This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. All right, uh, well, uh, the thundering music of the Magnificent Seven uh, welcomes our man to the studio, Philip Malloy, on movies. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you, George. Last and good week, I was asking about the wonderful Marnie Dixon because Nixon, uh, yeah. she had Marnie Nixon. Yeah. Sorry, she had done. I remember Deborah Carr and the King and I mm. and others. You've been having a look at her career. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, she's still alive. Did you know that? Um, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm determined now to try and get her for the picture show. <laughs> she's about eighty-four, I think. And uh, and uh, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound sort of the wrong kind of thing to say, but we've had a couple, couple of elderly people on recently and you'd be worried about the, you know, the strength of their voices and things like that, uh, but they're, um, they've been wonderful. Well, of course, there's an elderly person in front of you here <laughs> yes, who yes. Uh, objects greatly to this okay. depiction <laughs> of elderly <laughs> okay. people. Anyway, the, yeah, okay, the most prominent of these people who used to sit, uh, kind of fit in or um, uh, for uh, actors, what we had was a situation where um, actors who couldn't sing were playing kind of singing roles in these musicals and as you say uh, Marnie Nixon uh, made a career out of standing in uh, she did Deborah Kerr um, Audrey Hepburn and Natalie Wood in The King and I My Fair Lady and West Side Story and uh, often in these kind of situations the, uh, the, the the stand-in person the singer she would sign a document basically not to reveal a kind of contract not to reveal what she was doing uh, before uh, before the movie came out but her she had this obviously she had this lovely soprano voice and uh, she helped um, someone like Marilyn Monroe could actually sing but she she didn't have the kind of range that uh, the likes of Marnie Nixon would have uh, so she stood in for um, uh, she got the high notes she covered the high notes for um, Sorry Philip yeah. I mean it, it, so you sort of have Marilyn Monroe or Diamonds are a girl's best, best friend, yeah. and then you have Marnie Nixon coming in with like, yeah, she, yeah. sort of. I, but really, if, if, yeah, That's if you look at yeah, if you look at any time, oh, okay, uh, the River of No Return, the western she did with Robert Mitchum, she plays a saloon singer in that, and uh, she, they're, they're nice sort of little songs, but uh, she doesn't sort of extend herself at all. One of the things about Karen the King, King, King and I was she wanted to to seem, she wanted it to seem visually as if she was. Singing as well, so she had she, she studied Marnie Nixon's uh, neck and the uh, the stretches in her face, and uh, you know, right. yeah, just okay. to just to indicate that she was really singing. Um, but there's there's all kinds. I was looking it up. There's all kinds of other little sort of tidbits. Uh, who framed Roger Rabbit? The voice of Jessica Rabbit was provided by Kathleen Turner, but when she was actually uh, she was actually dubbed by Steven Spielberg's ex-wife Amy Irving for the singing, and uh, most of the the leads on West Side Story were wholly or partially dubbed uh, Wood obviously uh, Natalie Wood Richard Bamer Russ Tamblin remember Russ Tamblin the young dancer the greatest uh, gymnastic yeah, dancer yeah. I think well, of he, Hollywood he was a good dancer but he wasn't a great singer <laughs> no but he was absolutely wonderful in the movie I talked yes. about to you last week yeah. Seven, Seven Brides, Brides for Seven, Seven Brothers, Brothers. Was, some of his was, dancing was superb it was in great yeah, yeah and then Rita Marino Rita Marino actually won an Oscar um, uh, for West Side Story but she didn't have she didn't have the range that was required and she was partially dubbed by Marnie Nixon. Joan Crawford singing on Torch Song in 
1953. She was provi- she was uh, um, supplemented by uh, a singer called India Adams. And then there was a woman. Um, just absolutely fascinating stuff uh, available on the all these people. Marta Mears was her name, and she provided the singing voices of Lucille Ball, Claudette Colbert, Veronica Lake, Rita Hayward, who appeared in Cover Girl and various other. Uh, she was sung in various other movies, but she couldn't sing a, a note apparently. Hedy Lamar, your pal Hedy Lamar, Loretta Young, and Ava Gabor. She she actually um, stood in. She dubbed the singing voices of these people in over three dozen movies. And by the way, one of the few actual appearances on screen of, of Marnie Nixon was uh, as one of the singing nuns in The Sound of Music. Really? Yeah. Now, this Martha Mears lady, right, yeah. and... Uh, uh, Rita Hayworth. Mm. I think Rita Hayworth sings. Well, she obviously didn't, because, mm. but I always thought she could sing mm. until this very moment. Mm. She was more of a dancer than a singer, a yes. bit like Chris Tamblyn. Yeah. yeah, but she, there's a wonderful tune in uh, the Frank Sinatra pal Joey. Oh, zip. Zip, yeah. which is fabulous. Oh, yeah, the, the lyrics in that are great. Yes. <laughs> now, I, I've always assumed until this very moment yeah. that. Uh, that was sung by Rita Hayward. No, no. Rita Hayward was was the daughter of a Mexican dancer. Yeah. Yeah. So she could dance. That's dance, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Now, the picture show, this oh, yeah, 6 this, o'clock on yeah, Saturday. Okay, just to say, just to say a, a little story. Um, okay, on, on Saturday on the picture show, we have a, a special, it's a special edition of the picture show. And it's dedicated to A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, which is generally considered to have revolutionized the movie musical. I don't think you go along with that. One of the, there's a, there's a, a great quote from um, an American film scholar and critic called Andrew Sarah who called it the Citizen Kane of jukebox movies. Uh, but anyway, it was made uh, in, it was released in July 1964. It was directed by um, Richard Lester. Richard, Richard Lester did all kinds of other really good movies. He did two Superman movies. He did uh, Robin and Marion. He did Juggernaut. He did Petulia. All kinds of other Did movies. he do The Musketeers? He did The Musketeers. He did The Musketeers. Okay. And actually, one of the interesting things about The Musketeers is uh, he was, he's, he, he's been kind of, pretty much retired since 1989 and the reason for that was he was making the uh, the four musketeers and uh a comic called Roy Kinnear had worked with him constantly all through his life and they were great friends and Kinnear uh, who's the father by the way now of Rory Kinnear who appears in a lot of stuff uh, Kinnear fell off a horse and died and as a result of that uh, uh, Richard Lester uh, retired but just to say um, I I realised this was the 50th anniversary of A Hard Day's Night and I wanted to do something about it but obviously I had no connection no number at all for, uh, for Richard Lester I noticed in the Hollywood Reporter that the Hollywood Film Critics Circle was making a Lifetime Achievement Award, making a Lifetime Achievement presentation to him. So I contacted this guy who was the president of the um, uh, Los Angeles Film Critics, a fellow called Stephen Farber, who was enormously helpful, wonderfully helpful. He gave me um, uh, Richard Lester's um, email address. Uh, I contacted Richard Lester, and as it happened early in the year, this was this was uh, April May. He was about to go in for an operation, so he said, "If you ring me back in a month, I'll talk to you." <laughs> so I rang him back. I rang him back, and in a couple of weeks ago, I've been holding it uh, to coincide with the sort of real date, obviously, of the anniversary. And uh, so we did the interview a couple wow. of weeks, and it was great. 
Now, uh, the 50th anniversary of A Hard Day's Night, which I don't share your mm. great views mm. about, mm. but another friend of ours, and I think we can describe him as a, a friend because he's done a lot of stuff with us, okay. John Borman. Yeah. John Borman made a movie with the Rolling Stones, did he not? No, it was the Dave Clark Five. Was it? Oh, yeah. Dave Clark Five, it's right. Called, um, in America, it was called Having a Wild Weekend. Here, it was called Catch Us If You Can. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Dave Clark yeah. Five and an actress called Barbara Ferris, I think it was. Yeah. All right. Okay. I didn't see that either. Did not, so okay. That's okay. Yeah. I didn't go for jukebox movies. Now, one of the problems, and I did, we, you and I have mm. this chat mm. periodically, mm. because of inflation, it's yeah. well nigh impossible to compare anything, mm. but the, uh, the takings for movies particularly. Mm. Now, you've had your calculator out well, and uh, you've been yeah, well, adjusting for inflation. Yeah, well, this has been kind of all over the trade papers, but there's a, um, uh, a magazine called Business Insider and they've been looking at it. They've been uh, looking at the situation very, very scientifically. And whereas, uh, you know, every few weeks now, because Hollywood loves to trumpet this, uh, they'll tell you that a movie, uh, Avatar or something like that, has reached a billion dollars and we've, we've gotten more and more of those stories, you know, uh, the Avengers and Iron Man and all of those. But um, when uh, the thing is done properly and uh, inflation is factored in, um, it's the top 10, for instance, is very much kind of as you might expect. Number one is Gone with the Wind at $3.301 billion. Billion? Yeah, dollars. billion dollars. Avatar, <laughs> uh, Avatar at 2.782 is number two. Then you get Star Wars, 2.710. Titanic is 2.4. The Sound of Music is fifth on the list with 2.26 uh, billion. Then uh, number six is E.T., the extraterrestrial. It's the, uh, well, it's the only uh, Steven Spielberg movie in the top 10 and that's 2.216 uh, then you have the 10 commandments yeah, which is no, just that's very that's interesting, interesting. Yeah, which is just over 2 billion and then Dr. Zhivago Dr. Zhivago was uh, credited when it came out um I, people didn't. Some of the critics were very sniffy about it. They didn't like it as much, obviously, as Lawrence, as Lawrence of Arabia. Both of those are David Lean films, uh, but it was credited at the time as a huge success. The book uh, by Boris Pasternak had been a big success, and the film was a, a major success as well. And it took one point nine eight billion at the box office. It was credited at the time with, uh, with saving MGM Studios, which was. You know, uh, it was regularly in dire straits, and then Jaws, uh, one billion nine hundred and forty-five million, and then at number ten, uh, the only uh, animated picture, the only animated feature in the top ten is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's one uh, billion seven hundred and forty-six million. Now, these top ten, I think mm. I would have got eight, not mm. necessarily yeah, in yeah, order. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Not necessarily in order, but we yeah. would have got them, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, you you yeah. know, we probably. We might not have got the Ten Commandments. In fact, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we probably wouldn't have got Snow, Snow White. White. No, now, Snow, Snow White, White is, is the, the one first to, Disney. Yeah, uh, the first, the first Disney, Disney feature. The first Disney feature film, 1937. Uh, Walt Disney himself uh, oversaw it and he was responsible for bringing it to the screen. And again and again, that helped to remember... It's probably less so now, but traditionally, anyway, over the decades, you had a situation where Disney actually re-released its feature, um, its its animated features every seven to eight years to bring on a new audience, to bring on a new audience of kids, and that kind of pioneered that. But isn't it amazing 
that a film made in 37, before yeah. you and I were born, yeah. right, that you had children in, of that generation and you've had, what, I suppose three generations of kids maybe? Yeah. So, and yet they are all taken by the story yeah. and the wonderful way that, that Disney made it. I mean, yeah. it's a rare genius, in yeah. fact, that the, can do that. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the sort of detailed, it, it, I, I just love that sort of colourful detail that they tended to build around the main story in those animated features. And that that, that was the original. I mean, that was the, the template for, for that. Why do you think the Ten Commandments made so much money? I mean, we, we were a simpler uh, well, people I, and we liked, you know, we were yeah. all believers in Moses and stuff, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, well, I, I think there's maybe there's an element of that. But again, it was one of those movies that sort of, you know, kept coming up at religious festivals and stuff like that. I don't know, we, we were brought to see it at Easter in Wexford. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> the other, it. and we, do you remember, we were astonished by the parting of the Red Sea. Oh, do you remember? Amazing. Like, we just thought it was the most amazing piece of filmmaking, didn't mm. We? Mm. we? They were simple days. Pity they're not back. Yeah. I don't think my grandchildren would be remotely be impressed. Surprised. They, wouldn't be, they wouldn't be impressed at all <laughs> the same way. Now, listen, Listen, um, I didn't, I told you last week again, I mm. didn't like the first yeah. of the new Planet Apes. You're a bit more impressed? And I know, I've, read I'm, more I was usually impressed, or? first of all, about, with the first one. And uh, just to tell people a little bit about the, the second one, which is out this week. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, you and I have vowed to go see it at some stage. Uh, story picks up 10 years after the last one. Humankind has been brought to its knees by this kind of bl- global virus. If, if you remember at the end of the last film, you saw the virus actually spreading throughout the world and these kind of genetically enhanced apes they've built their own sort of echo community in forests around San Francisco and under the wise leadership of this alpha um, ape called Caesar uh, who's played by Andy Serkis uh, they've taken on some sort of human uh, traits they communicate in sign language and halting uh, English Uh, they hunt with spears they wear makeup and they've even established a kind of uh, um, a fairly a primitive education system and they haven't seen humans for years so when a small sort of expedition led by the Australian actor Jason Clark wanders into the forest they're kind of taken aback and then as the two sides kind of establish a, a, a tentative bonds the waters begin to kind of muddy Caesar uh, favours cooperation with the humans his disfigured lieutenant uh, called Kobe in the movie he suspects him and the same applies then on the human side uh, the Jason Clark character wants to make connections with the apes while his boss played by Gary Oldman Gary Oldman is once again a villain in this movie um, he's against it uh, so that's what you have you have this kind of uh, setup. now I gather it looks absolutely splendid I gather the use of CGI in it is amazing and uh, so I'm, I have to say I love the first okay. one and I'm looking forward to it now if we go all the way back Charlton Heston yeah. this has got to be what more than 20 years ago yeah Charlton Heston was 67, 1967. All right. Now, okay, 50 years ago. Now, the the whole makeup thing of the apes and all that would be pretty impressive for 1967. Oh, yeah. Do you see dramatic differences in these modern apes? Well, everything everything now is, is much more supple. You know what I mean? Uh, there's no kind of starchiness about it. You're actually impressed that these are these are hunched over. These actually uh, move uh, like 
sort of you'd expect apes and one of the things we had Andy Circus on the picture show uh, over a year ago and he told me that he actually went to study apes in Rwanda in order to get this right you know, all right, yeah, okay. And he went to he went to the zoos okay. and so on. You know, so she could have gone to Dublin if he only knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, it's it's the movies with Philip Malloy, and uh, we'll be back. Uh, you have news of Michael yeah. Douglas. Yeah. I'm okay. no fan uh, now. Okay, just to come back to it. He's I, not his father. Okay, come back to that in a sec. First of all, it's a movie called And So It Goes. It's a, I suppose it's a rom-com and it's it's aimed at uh, what they are now calling, George, the Grey Pound audience. And um, uh, in, in this, on, on this side of the Atlantic, anyway, I don't know if it's called the Grey Dollar audience in America. Okay, uh, it's the, the director and star of an American president. The star, obviously, was Michael Douglas and the director was Rob Rayner. So the two of them are basically um, together again. And it's about this kind of self-centered centered estate agent. And he enlists the help of his neighbor, who's played by Diane Keaton, when he's suddenly left in charge of a grandchild that he didn't realize that uh, he had or he didn't realize there was a grandchild in his family. And um, so it's basically a story of this elderly character, this self-serving, self-seeking elderly character played by Douglas, who is kind of taught life lessons by both the child and by um, uh, Diane Keaton. I don't know if Diane Keaton and Douglas, I can't remember off the top of my head, have actually made a movie together before. You're very interesting you mentioned Diane Mm. Keaton. Yeah. Because Diane Keaton had a baby she didn't know about, which was left to her by somebody, and she was a top-ranking marketing executive. But then she took the baby and it changed her life yes. and if you remember she fell in love with the vet that, up in New England that's right and she she invented a baby food or baby something food. now that was a great movie I now you see there you are <laughs> that, 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 that was a comedy okay no, was, and, and was, we're, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about comedy and about what appeals and what doesn't appeal you know and, I thought I thought that was smashing. Mm. And I've watched it a few times. I really enjoyed it. And that great actor who died fairly recently, father of somebody, or his his daughter was an actress as well, I think. Uh, he was really good in it. And Jeez, you're remember. giving me a lot of clues now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll think of it by next week. Yeah. Now, I, listen, mm. I promise not to say a word because you're going to talk about... Uh, Downfall, well, another we, movie. I yeah, won't say a word. Well, well, first of all, we both agree that Downfall was an absolutely superb movie. It was about the last days in the life of Hitler in his bunker in Berlin in whatever it was, 1945. And uh, so it was made by a, a German filmmaker, a fellow called Oliver Hirschbegel. And he has now, he, he tried a few other things um, since and, and it didn't turn out nearly as well. But now he's gone back to Germany and he's make, made a movie. It's a biopic based on the life of this man, George Elser, E-L-S-E-R. And uh, Elser basically was a a resistance fighter who tried to assassinate Hitler in a Munich beer hall in 1939. And the film, I gather, follows, they've actually started to shoot, it follows Elser's story from his early years in the Swabian Alps uh, to his last days at the Dachau concentration camp. He was killed, apparently, just a a few weeks before the war ended. And... um, 
Well, obviously, Elser, he nearly changed history with his attempt on Hitler, but Hitler apparently had left the beer hall earlier than expected that night, and the, the attempt on his life didn't um, succeed. The film is shooting until September uh, in Berlin, the province of South Tyrol in the northern uh, in northern Italy, Italy, and in several German states. So it it looks as if um, he's it looks as if he has a good script. Uh, it looks as if he's 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 shooting it fairly expansively, and it looks like he has a decent budget as well. Right. Just one piece of interesting information, yeah. not to do movies, but the South Tyrol is in Italy, is it, but yeah. but they all speak German, and and it was part of the old Austrian-Hungarian Empire, right. and then when they divvied up the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War One, Italy got the Tyrol, so it remains this well, yeah. German, yeah, You've it remains there? this German enclave in Italy. You know, which is quite interesting. Mm. Now, so I wonder why he's chosen that for the movie. Um, I do. Did want... you know this character? Did you know Elsa? Uh, Georg Elsa. I read yeah. about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, it's going to be. I mean, it, doing a movie about Hitler is one thing. Yeah. Doing about a movie about somebody that nobody knows anything about is a different trick. Mm, mm. I mean, this will challenge him. Yeah. I would have thought. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, but uh, one thing about the Hitler movie is we we would all sort of have said to ourselves, well, we pretty much know all this. You know, it's, this yes. is going to be predicted. But he, it was absolutely riveting. It was so oh. involving, you know. And hopefully, he'll 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 achieve something similar with this. There's a whole new industry has grown up on YouTube, which is to take clips of Hitler from downfall, right? Yeah. And then superimpose. <sighs> Uh, 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 t- subtitles so it's like Hitler discussing the selection of the Irish team <laughs> you know or whatever and it's a whole and it's very Hitler funny Hitler and Roy Keane discover- yeah, but it's discussing. very funny yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the fellas have done it brilliantly but mm. it's a whole new industry I I haven't got in to Ray Donovan have I missed something well I think you have I think it has elements of the Sopranos in it which is a big thing to say um, it was okay we're on now to the second season the second season begins on the 16th um, of July which is what? Last night I haven't seen it we will change that uh, okay, but it's, it's starting on Sky. Sorry, Atlantic. the second season uh, begins on Sky Atlantic tonight. Okay, tonight. Okay, and it stars uh, Lee Schreiber, a lovely actor. I, I really like him, uh, and he plays uh, John Voight is in it as well, and Hank Azaria, who's uh, an awful lot of people would know as the voice of several of the Simpsons characters on TV. He's playing this Los Angeles-based uh, FBI agent in it. But as as anybody will will tell you, and an awful lot of people know about it, um, it's 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 the story basically of this fixer who's employed by um, law firms in LA to sort of clean up after uh, you know with their various clients um, when when they've dirtied their bib or whatever you know. All right. So okay. it's um, okay. and it's. I think it's the stories are really strong. Now a movie that I will have. It's really interesting for mm. me mm. because I never really was bought into the Lance Armstrong story yeah. when he was winning, and then I didn't really follow it that much when all the investigations were going on. But the great David Walsh, who who who, who you and I would have worked at a similar yeah. time when yeah. he was at the Independent. Yeah, well, he was um, in the press as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David. This is a story based on David Walsh's campaign against Armstrong, yeah, really, well, a movie. Okay, yeah, well, okay, and and there have been several, uh, there was, there's been at least one very, very impressive documentary so far, and there's several books, obviously, all kinds of books, including David Walsh's book, which I suppose 
um, is the main book, is the book to get, and it's Seven Deadly Sins, My uh, Pursuit of Lance Armstrong. And what they've done is Stephen Freer's, the director Stephen Freer's, um, and a writer called John Hodge. John Hodge would probably be, Scottish writer, would probably be best known uh, for writing Train Spotting. But him and Freer's have come together to do a film version of the of this book. And um, it should be said that Stephen Freer's career um, is kind of back on track after the success last year, uh, the critical success and the box office success, huge box office hit of Philomena Mina with um, with Judy Dench. Now, Stephen Frears, I think, started mm. his career at the BBC. He did. Didn't he? he I did. think he was no, like he a staff director no, he did. No, he did. at the he did. BBC. He did. He, did. Yeah, right. he, he okay. was one of those. He's, 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 he's probably one of the most enduring of those directors. Ken Loach obviously started off in the same way. Uh, 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 so he would have started off in the, the 60s. And anyway, in this case, um, the cast is absolutely fascinating. I love an act, the actor Ben Foster. He's playing uh, Lance Armstrong. But Chris O'Dowd is actually playing David Walsh in it. Chris O'Dowd. And uh, uh, knowing David Walsh as you and I do, David probably wanted to play David. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman is in it as well. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. I didn't think he was great on a bike. And, and and Jesse Plemons is in it as well, so it's 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 worth sort of looking forward to. There's a, the, I haven't seen an opening date for it yet. I'd expect it to be before Christmas. They're presumably thinking in terms of Oscars or at least Oscar campaigns. One of the things there's a, a series of 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 prominent festivals coming up Toronto uh, Telluride Venice and I presume it'll pop up at least at, at least one of those Now Damien Curtis wants to know is there a release yes. date for The Theory of Everything yeah, what's that? The Theory of Everything is basically it's the story of Stephen Hawking and um, oh. yeah, and his relationship with it's a love story I gather with, with his wife he's played by a nice English actor called Eddie Redmayne in it and uh, it's, it's, it, it's due out um, on the 7th of November so we'll be seeing it fairly soon, and I gather it's it's um, uh, it okay. Obviously, uh, Hawking discovers uh, that he has uh, motor neuron disease. Uh, they tell him that he only has a couple of years to live, and uh, um, he basically he feels. Uh, I gather the, the thing feels that he saved his life was saved by his relationship with his wife. They there are a number of extraordinary women who who married men with yeah. severe disabilities. Jane Wilde, I think, is this woman's name. But they were extraordinary women, yeah. Because you know they it wasn't. I don't mean women who who married somebody who then. Became. developed disability yeah. but women who married so a man they, with a disability so for want of a better phrase they knew what they were getting into absolutely right? yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. and I think that made them quite astonishing yeah. and it's interesting heroic uh, yeah. yeah and it's interesting that Hawking talks about um, his his uh, saving his life uh, I've, I've talked to a number of two Irishman, one an ex-rugby player uh, very, very badly hurt and, and then there was a very interesting fellow um, uh, you know a dare the the uh, the dare manor, dare manor. Yeah. Who who was the the owner of it? The the Duke of uh, the the Prince of the Baron of. Uh, <laughs> he'll come to me in a minute. You're um, not thinking about Tony O'Reilly or someone. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no, no. Uh, but but his wife, he was uh, in a wheelchair, and uh, they just like extraordinary relationship. 
and, yeah. and I, I, like, they're two people who I knew. Yeah. And the extraordinary well, relationship I mean, of these women was, yeah. was so impressive. Yeah, I mean, it sounds trite to say it like this, but... The, I mean, the Earl of Dunraven. Yeah, I'm the, delighted to remember. Yeah, that, that, he, got yeah, he got polio. Yeah, he got polio and, and uh, very early on as a child and so on was confined to a wheelchair pretty well. Uh, and that kind of situation is quite, quite extraordinary. Mm. So this movie... Would cover that type of situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but again, yeah. a huge directorial challenge because... Yeah. He, you have to avoid the mawkish, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Eddie Redman, as I said, plays the part. Eddie Redman is a slight, um, uh, a young kind of English actor, very attractive young man. Felicity Jones is a gorgeous actress and she'll play the wife in it. Uh, so uh, I presume they're they're getting the two of them out of obviously a young age Emily Watson David Chulis great actor uh, he's in the new John Borman film Charlie Cox and Maxine Peake who, uh, who is a very nice actress she was in that series called Silk on TV recently and it's directed by James March we talked briefly about James March last week because he directed and won an Oscar for that um, uh, for that documentary Man on Wire and he also by the way if you ever get a chance to see uh, a Northern Ireland thriller a thriller set in the North of Ireland called Shadow Dancer it's worth having a look at alright um We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.